Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, everyone. Just before we start the show, I, I wanted to take a second to say a few words about our, our very kind sponsors. 100 Resilient Cities is a part of the Rockefeller Foundation, which which you'll probably know is one of the world's largest charitable endowments. 100 Resilient Cities is is focused on, on helping cities around the world become more resilient to the, the social, physical and economic challenges of the 21st century. They're doing some excellent projects in terms of you know environmental sustainability, in terms of economic sustainability, and just in terms of you know making life generally generally better for everyone in cities from Manchester to Miami to Melbourne to Montevideo. You can find out lots more, including reading up on some of those fantastic projects at their website, which is 100resilientcities.org. Anyway, now on with the show. Okay, how are you doing anyway? Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, I don't seem to do anything other than talk and write about trains at the moment, but apart from that... It's brilliant, um... isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I think you probably love it more than I do. <laughs> This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, you beautiful people. I'm John Elledge, and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast. This is this is going to be a, a mildly depressing episode of Skylines. If you live in the north of England, I warn you of that now. We're going to talk about the, the ongoing crisis in, in the North's Rail Network uh, with, with Jen Williams of the Manchester Evening News, who is one of the one of the best journalists writing about politics from the North today. Uh, miraculously, since, since we recorded this conversation on Tuesday afternoon, the situation somehow seems to have actually got worse. For, uh, Lisa Nandy MP for Wigan, who, who's a former guest on this show, asked at Prime Minister Question Times about a series of, of emails she'd seen in which officials described uh, some of the routes in the north of England of lacking in value. There's talk about using um, effectively propaganda strategies to, you know, putting out notices suggesting that, that routes were going to close altogether so that when they were just like diverted or, or, or frequency was cut, it looked like a whim. And yeah, she asked, she asked Theresa May about this, uh, Prime Minister's questions. There were, there were, there were cries of, of shame and, you know, calls from on the Transport Secretary Chris Grayling to resign. Uh, and, and the Prime Minister's response was that no government would respond to, to leaks. Which was a bit odd because there weren't so much leaks as, as uh, in some cases, letters to an MP by by an actual minister sent in 2016. So, but you know, I suppose 
as Prime Minister, Theresa May is fairly well well practiced in doing whatever is necessary to get through the next ten minutes. So, and and she seems to survive. Chris Grayling remarkably is still in post, although I think the the most compelling reason for keeping Chris Grayling there is a lot of his stuff is not actually his fault. So, if it wasn't him, someone else would have to be dealing with this nonsense. It'd be trashing someone else's reputation. So, so I suspect, despite his his record of gaffes, like Mr. Bean in the bloody toy shop, Chris Grayling is probably is probably safe for the moment. We're going to speak to, to Jen about exactly what's going on in, in the North uh, in a moment. But before that, please do allow me to do some, some very light bragging. Uh, this weekend, the, the Observer published a list of, of its top ten political podcasts, which included uh, Romaniacs. It included the Partly Political Broadcast, as well as uh, several other shows on which I've, I've not, in fact, been a guest. But right right at the bottom, in the very, the very last slot on there, was, was Skylines. Uh, which was lovely. We've not really had a shout-out like that in a rival publication before. And just talked about how, like, you know, although it's not directly political, a lot of the time you can kind of get a sense of, of the politics of cities and what's going on. So, you know, it's really, it's really nice to get that kind of shout-out. And I've been kind of um, pretty smug about that all week. And also... I've been avoiding uh, mentioning this to, to Helen and Stephen because the main New Statesman podcast somehow was not on the list. So I'm a bit frightened of what's going to happen when, when they find out. But anyway, enough about me. Let's talk about trains. Uh, I am Jen Williams. I'm the Social Affairs Editor at the Manchester Evening News. So I cover uh, politics and social issues, a bit of investigations for the MEN. Are, tra- are trains politics or are trains a social issue? What are, what are trains? Oh. I think trains are both, aren't they? I think they're very much a political issue in the north at the moment, and they're affecting thousands of people. So, uh, yeah, I put it in both camps. I think. Let's let's kind of start with you know, paint paint us a picture of the the full horror of the of the last few weeks. What's what the hell is going on up there? Uh, Northern Rail, in fact, Northern Trains in general, but Northern Rail has been pretty ropey for. Uh, a long time. Delayed electrification works on various northern lines haven't helped that. So there's been various routes that have been sort of plagued by rail replacement bus services now for uh, a long time. The route to Blackpool has been a particular problem and anybody who gets a train through Bolton will uh, talk your ear off about how awful it's been for um, for a long time. Overcrowded trains, uh, unreliable trains, uh, too few trains and replacement bus services. So that's that has been a problem for a long time. When the time, national timetable changes were due to come in in May, that was the point where the kind of chaos started to hit more of a national profile. But actually, we had seen a lot of cancellations happening in the weeks running up to May the 20th, I think, was the day that the new timetable changes came in. So we were getting a lot of complaints from readers saying that they were stuck on platforms across the north, not able to get between Liverpool and Manchester, uh, Manchester and Leeds, up into Cumbria, Blackpool, Preston, across to Sheffield. So that was a problem. And then when May the 20th hit and the new national timetable changes came in, it went into complete freefall. Effectively, everything just seized up and there were hundreds and hundreds of trains cancelled every single day. That went on for about two weeks and then the government did something. I'm not quite sure what, but there were clearly discussions happening. Everybody was going mad about it. And so Northern then decided to bring in an emergency timetable which has seen a percentage of trains cancelled, which means their cancellation figures do look better now because the proportion of the overall scheduled trains that are cancelled has gone down, but obviously there are fewer scheduled trains in the first place. That has then uh, had various knock-on issues, aside from the fact that there are fewer trains, 
but you will get uh, routes where there'll be one train comes through during the rush hour period and then there just literally won't be another one until uh, after rush hour. And because there were the same number of people on the platform as usual, you know, it, there were hundreds of people left stood there on the platform once that one train has gone and then that's that. And then the final exacerbating factor today is the unions have walked out. <laughs> so we've had people, somebody messaged me this morning saying that there was no train to lead until 10 past 10. <laughs> I don't know whether there'd been one, you know, uh, really early doors, but it's just completely ridiculous, like completely ridiculous. It's Tuesday afternoon as you record this. Let's kind of stick with the sort of newsy point for a second. You say the, the unions have, have walked out. Is this related to the other chaos or is this just kind of a sort of parallel chaos and they're sort of feeding off each other? Yeah, it's a parallel chaos to do with some, to do with guards on trains and to do with uh, Northern's plans for uh, changing that whole setup, which I think has got parallels with similar moves that other franchises have tried in other parts of uh, the country. So I think that's a that's a kind of rumbling dispute that has been going along in the background. And there had been. It's confusing because there was an AS left dispute and there was an RMT dispute. There were disputes over drivers, disputes over guards. And some of it was kind of put on a kind of hiatus when the whole timetable changes called, caused the meltdown. But that was only a temporary hiatus. And that was to do with the drivers and how much they were uh, going to get paid for working on their rest days. This is to do with the guards. So you can see there's a whole kind of perfect storm of issues going on all at the same time. Yeah, it really feels quite difficult to unpick this. There seem to be yeah. like... Lots of different kind of causes that have gone into this, which make it almost impossible to work. It, it's not that you can't work out who to blame. It's more that like there's kind of enough blame to go around for everyone, really. Yeah, definitely. There was um, there was a transport select committee hearing yesterday where some of the people in charge of the operators that had had particular problems, including Northern, went went before the MPs, and that was very much the sense that kind of came out of it for me. I mean, Northern were sort of doing all but explicitly pointing the finger at the government and saying we told them that we needed to delay the implementation of this timetable, but we were the only operator who was forced to draw up a completely new one in 16 weeks, and that's what's caused this, and basically saying it's not MeGov. But really, if you kind of listened to the sort of thread going throughout the hearing, it seemed to be more of just a complete systemic problem, because when they were asked about who was project managing it, it was kind of like there wasn't really an answer to that. There's like no single body or individual apparently responsible. Sort of network rail, it's sort of rail north, it's kind of the government. And that was something that really stood out for me, that it's a kind of systemic tangle where when you end up in a situation like this, actually it isn't clear who is going to ultimately take responsibility for it. You've got Northern being fined under its franchise, presumably, although nobody will actually give us figures for that. But at the same time, Northern potentially able to claim back compensation from Network Rail because Network Rail overran on the electrification programme. And it go and, and round and round in circles it goes. So it's 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 just a mess, really. So why was the sort of timetable rewrite up there so huge? Is it is, is it there's obviously the Oldsall curve, which is a new bit of track through Manchester. Is, yeah. is that a factor, or is it the electrification, or what's what's what, why is it such an upheaval? It was more the electrification. It was that the electrification programmes, I think, on Preston Line were supposed to have been done originally by December 2016. That then ran into December 2017. 
that that was then supposed to be in place by now and it wasn't and then there was a meeting in January where it was agreed that well at least according to David Brown who's the MD of Northern Rail he says that the industry and Network Rail met in January to discuss the timetable changes that were due to come in across the country as of May and Northern said look this latest electrification project delay is going to mean that you know we we're not going to be able to deliver that timetable and they said right well you're going to have to redraw it then in the next 16 weeks and normally it would take 40 weeks to do a project as large as that and they were the only ones that had to do that so effectively the way he described it was they had to take their bit out of the national jigsaw redraw it and then put it back into the national jigsaw but while they were doing it it then transpired that the blackpool line the electrification of that was also going to be delayed <laughs> so then that then according to him anyway meant that they had 450 more drivers that then needed to be retrained but they just literally didn't have the time to set all of those wheels in motion and so it it, it certainly the way the picture that he paints is of a completely perfect storm of everything kind of going wrong all at the same time and then in the background you've got all these union disputes going on as well but i mean you know you have to bear in mind that that is northern's version of events and you know quite clearly the government thinks that there's some culpability on northern's part as well the fact that northern does seem to have been in more than one ongoing disputes with its with its staff Mm -hmm. and their unions does does not suggest that the 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 train operating company is entirely blame free on this one really does it no no and i mean we hear from staff saying exactly that and also saying that actually these problems were known much further in advance than Northern are now trying to make out. He says that they were, you know, not really fully aware of the implications in two day, until two days before. There was a lot of people saying to me on Twitter yesterday, that's just simply not true. Everybody in the rail industry at the moment seems to be engaged in kind of blowing smoke to some extent. Got Chris Grayling saying, oh, well, I didn't know about this. You've got other people in the rail industry saying, yes, he did. It's very frustrating as a journalist not to be able to kind of get to the empirical facts of actually who knew what and when. But as it stands at the moment, it kind of isn't really all that clear. It just feels to me like a sort of object lesson in why there need to be clear lines of accountability. There's just so many different groups involved in this that pretty much everyone has a potentially quite compelling sort of argument by which they can say, well, you know, it's not, not me, I've blamed them. And they're just playing past the parcel, right? I think so. And also, it's it's an interesting, I mean, you know, I'm a big advocate of devolution, but when you've got a kind of partial devolution in the way that you have over over the Northern franchise, where you've effectively got a partnership between Transport for the North and the DFT running the Northern franchise, but the ultimate, uh, the ultimate final say goes to the DFT. So you've got this sort of like partial devolution over it. That in a way only then complicates matters further because you've got the Northern leaders blaming the government and the government sort of really would rather like to blame the Northern leaders and say, well, you wanted to be involved in this. So, you know, you're also culpable too. And then you've got Andy Burnham thrown into the equation who is getting so many complaints from rail passengers here, even although actually he doesn't have any direct executive power over the rail franchise, he does sit on Transport for the North, but, you know, he can't just sort of snap his fingers and do a thing. So then he's wading in and he's getting involved in the campaigning and the and the outrage about it. In a, in a way, that all kind of muddies the waters further because then you've got that split between um, Whitehall and the North as well. Cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Can we step back a bit? I'd like to ask, how important are the trains in the north? I mean, the, the reason I was going to ask is because basically nobody drives to central London. If you're anywhere in the southeast and you work in town, you will get a train to work. Is it yeah. is it is it the same in in the in Manchester and the other northern cities, or do things work a bit differently? No, it isn't the same. In a way, that's what underlines the arguments for more northern infrastructure, because, you know, so many people are still driving and they're piling onto the M62, either between Manchester and Liverpool or Manchester and Leeds or various other kind of northern major road routes, which is causing. And I did something this week, in fact, about the levels of pollution in Greater Manchester actually being higher than in London, but less is being done about it. Actually, when we do our from time to time, we'll do a survey of our readers and trains are a minority sport Actually, among the people who read the Manchester Evening News, by and large, it's more road users and then after that, bus users. And buses really are the Cinderella transport service, which although we do now have bus franchising powers under the mayor, they've only been in place about a year or so and they haven't actually done anything yet. They've not delivered anything yet. So rail travel is arguably a bit of a middle class in comparison to, to bus and perhaps road travel, a bit of a middle class commuter kind of thing in the north. And that's not in any way to diminish it. But I think it's kind of it is important to bear in mind that actually more people are busy using other equally congested methods of transport. So has the, the fact it is, as you say, a minority sport, has that made it kind of harder to draw attention to the problems you it actually, it hasn't. That hasn't been the difficulty in drawing attention to the problems because there are still a great many people. It's only comparatively a mi- minority sort of sport. There are still a great, great many people who rely on the trains to get in between our major cities and also to get up to places like Barrow and up into Cumbria. So it is, it's a highly significant thing and the people who are involved in it are extremely angry and there's very large numbers of them. The, the difficulty in raising the profile of it has not been raising the profile of it here. It's been raising the profile of it in London because... So much of the focus has seems to just be around transport issues around the southeast, 
possibly because as you say it's it's perhaps more heavily relied on I, I you know I don't have the figures but probably more likely just because there was a kind of cultural thing that tends to focus first on London and then look at everywhere else and it's just almost like you kind of have to shout a bit harder to be heard I think it's to an extent it's just the it's the inevitable result of the fact that the, that so much of the political and media class is based in London so when Thameslink or Southern Rail falls over a significant minority of them are directly affected and are angry about it. Yeah. Where, yeah. Whereas obviously that's you know, there are much smaller numbers of, of people kind of working in this world in the north, and they're kind of less less kind of tied into uh, into government really. I've, yeah, I, I found it really noticeable when the real kind of meltdown started to happen that the two me- sort of big national media outlets that were quite quickly on the case were Radio Five, who obviously. Five Live, sorry, based in Salford, and actually Six Music, who do a lot of their stuff in Salford, and both of them I heard talking about the train chaos before I really heard it mentioned on Radio 4, and I thought that was quite significant, really. You know, there's all this kind of debate about, oh, was there any point moving the BBC to Media City? It's it's those kind of subtle background cultural shifts, actually, that for me have been the most significant, and you can notice that across different bits of the kind of media landscape. No, it was very striking when you said that, like, the timetable change was kind of a, a, a crucial moment, but it wasn't, like, the minute this started. No. Where this stuff has clearly been going on for a while, and, and you know, I, I follow trains stuff fairly closely. I wasn't really aware of quite how bad things have got up there until until the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I, I mean, the Blackpool, I, so I've got a mate lives up in Blackpool, and I think it was Easter last year, I remember going on a massive Twitter rant about it, because I had to get, I was sat on a rail replacement bus, and she'd been kind of constantly going up and down already for absolutely ages on this rail replacement bus and taking like hours and hours and hours and hours to do like really what should be very straightforward journeys and that was over a year ago but I mean you know I'm comparing Manchester to London in terms of the level of national focus if you then compare Manchester to Blackpool well then you've probably got a similar kind of cultural imbalance there because Manchester probably hogs quite a lot of the limelight in in comparison to some of the kind of smaller places that are sort of overlooked perhaps overlooked in other parts of the north so there's also that kind of that sort of imbalance perhaps even within the north as well but yeah it's it's definitely been a problem much longer than the you know may the 21st or whenever the commuters got hit on the northern complete chaos so so you've probably been like following this closer than just about anyone certainly closer than the actual transport sector as far as we can tell <laughs> what's the what's what's the solution Go on, how, how, how do we oh, fix this Look, I'm not going to proclaim myself as a rail industry expert, partly because it's one of those areas where there really are a lot of people out there who know about trains. And I notice it the second that you get even a tiny thing wrong in a story or on Twitter, people are straight down on you because they really, really do know this stuff. So I don't have the kind of, uh, I, I can't come up with the kind of silver bullet for it. I think there has been a kind of long history now or recent history of northern leaders saying that they need more control over uh, northern transport links and on the evidence that we've got currently I don't see any reason why they wouldn't do a better job of it than the DFT. I think that is the sort of direction that we've slowly been crawling in anyway in the north. We've already got these sort of elected mayors that have been set up. Um, We've got transport for the north. We've got the beginnings of a kind of transport for the north strategy for long-term investment for infrastructure upgrades, some of which uh, have sort of 
provisionally had approval for the government, but everything, you know, they talk about devolution, but then everything still ends up getting bounced back to the DFT for sign-off. And we've had a few things that we were sort of, you know, indicatively promised by George Osborne, like control over our railway stations, for example, or the expansion of Manchester Piccadilly, that then haven't ended up happening because you've got a change in the Conservative administration. Chris Grayling comes into the DFT and suddenly it just languishes on his desk or doesn't happen at all. And that's, you know, that's immensely frustrating for, for people in the north because so much work has gone in to drawing up these various proposals and to making the arguments and to saying actually it would cost a fraction of what you're going to spend on this in the southeast and then finding that they're banging their heads against the wall. So I do think that what's happened over the last few weeks does strengthen the argument for, uh, for more devolution over um, sort of northern infrastructure improvements. Who would you devolve to? What, what sort of strikes me is like, you know, in, in, in London, you've got Transport for London and you have the Mayor of London and they, uh, they basically have the same geography. Whereas you can't really sort of, like there is a Transport for Greater Manchester, but the nature of kind of not only the rail network, but the sort of wider economy out there is you have a bunch of cities and counties that are kind of interconnected. It's not, it's kind of difficult to draw a line around one of them and say, right, we will run this in isolation. You do kind of need to be talking about that sort of broader transport for the north area, right? So I think it depends on, it probably depends on the thing. Certainly Greater Manchester can do with more devolved powers over just the kind of transport stuff that kind of directly affects them. I mean, they had to, to drag the powers for bus franchising out of the government. And I think, you know, really everywhere should have those powers to be able to sort out their bus networks. Why not do it in phases? You don't have to hand over the entirety of the northern infrastructure budget to the north all in one go, but, you know, do it project by project. Currently, Transport for the North as a body is relatively in its infancy, but it seems to me that it isn't really being given a lot of opportunity to flex its muscles. So, you know, why not give it complete control of the Northern franchise? For example, it's difficult to see how it could do a worse job than the DFT has done so far. But it's a kind of it's a monumentally complex thing. And the only person really that's been in government that, you know, that you've actually seen pick up and run with it as a concept has been George Osborne uh, and a, a few of the people, you know, around him. And since he's been gone, you don't get the sense that there's a, a kind of willingness to think creatively or ambitiously on that scale in London. So while like maybe there isn't a straightforward answer to how you would do that devolution, at least previously there was somebody willing to talk about the possible permutations of it and the possible ways that you could do it, whereas now it's kind of almost like they're banging on a closed door. It was very noticeable that the minute we had the change of, of government after the Brexit referendum and Osborne went out and Theresa May and her, her people came in, they sort of lost interest in the North. They started banging on about the Midlands engine because that's a part yeah. of the country where, with more Labour Tory marginals. Yeah I, yeah, I think that's true. I don't think that was the... I don't think that was the only reason that they started banging on about the Midlands and not the North. I think there was also a little bit of, um, I don't want to say pettiness, but I think some of it was a bit kind of personal to George Osborne, that this was George Osborne's project, that he hadn't shut up about it for however many years. And we're going to, you know, we're going to make our stamp on this. And of course, latterly, they ended up with um, a Tory mayor in, uh, in the West Midlands, which is kind of helpful to that agenda as well. Um, and I mean, it's fair to say there are 
marginals in the Midlands that need attention in the same way as there are marginals in the North that politically need attention as well. I think definitely, I mean, George Osborne's kind of agenda on the North has been compared to Michael Heseltine's, um, to me, by more than one person, in that he got the kind of economic imperative to uh, focus on infrastructure investment and focus um, priorities on the North and to actually listen to people with a kind of ability to get things done, like Sir Howard Bernstein's uh, when he was at the top of Manchester Council. But Osborne also understood the political imperative to get it done as well, that they are not going to be able to win an overall majority unless you're winning your, your Boltons and your Berries and, and so on and so forth. So he kind of got the twin argument for that. And I think when he left, there was a kind of initial backlash against him anyway within the new administration that said, oh, we're not, you know, we're not running with the Osborne agenda. And that, but then kind of fundamentally, it's never seemed to me that there has been another person who's coming in his place who's actually fully got the arguments in the same way. That, that feels true to me. It always felt like the whole Northern Powerhouse thing was, it was both sincere and quite a cynical play from Osborne. Like he was sincere yeah. about it for cynical political reasons. Yeah, I think that's right. I do think he believed the economic arguments for it. I, I do think that he genuinely listened to the economic arguments for why it would be a good thing to do from a chancellor's point of view. And I think he approved of them. And I think that fitted very neatly with his wider, more cynical political agenda. Yeah. Just before we, before we wrap up, I just wanted to sort of ask a couple of questions about how uh, how, how how the beloved, the sainted Andy Burnham is getting on as <laughs> as mayor of Greater Manchester. He's been in he's been in office for more than a year now. He's I think he's certainly the highest profile of the of the the, the mayors elected last mm. year. How how from 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 your office do you think he's doing? So I think he still seems to have a reasonable amount of popularity and goodwill. I think. Uh, you know, he's done a good job of flying the flag on the on the Northern Rail stuff more recently. I think he has he kind of uh, he made himself a difficult bed to lie in with a couple of his pledges. Um, you know, he he promised to eradicate rough sleeping by 2020. So he's got less than two years within which to do that. And uh, as of now and within his first year, rough sleeping went up by. 43% or something in Greater Manchester. Yeah, so, there, I mean, there have been things that have been brought in in order to tackle that. Most of that, um, in terms of actual concrete stuff, has been actually government investment. So we've had quite a lot of money towards sort of trying to get entrenched rough sleepers into housing. I think in, in his favour on homelessness, I think that is something that he genuinely believes in. And I think that... I think the thing with the mayoral position in Greater Manchester is that it really doesn't have as much harder executive power as you would necessarily think if you, if you heard Andy Burnham talking on the radio. Like He hasn't got that many direct levers of power that he can just pull and do a thing. So it relies on a lot of soft power. It relies on a lot of getting people around the table. And where homelessness has been concerned, I think that's worked quite well because previously it had been really fragmented and you've got all these different agencies and charities all doing their own thing all in different 10 different boroughs, but not really very joined up. And I think that he's been successful in that respect. But, you know, that is a pretty big pledge that he made. And a lot of people are now sort of looking at it and thinking, really, like, I'm not sure that that was such a great idea. Crime figures are not great. Um, you know, we recorded 
some measures the worst crime figures in the country exactly a year after he was elected. He hadn't promised to cut crime, but he is the police and crime commissioner. Um, so, you know, that's not a great situation. But again, you know, you've got this sort of have, have cake, eat cake situation where it's kind of like I'm in charge, but at the same time, I'm not in charge because the government's in charge of the budget. So you've got that sort of messy part devolved situation that always makes it a little bit of a fudge. And I think, you know, the, the next big thing looming for Andy Burnham, which is going to be a tough one, is the uh, spatial framework, which is effectively how they're going to plan ahead to meet their housing need across Greater Manchester over the next couple of decades. And he promised to tear up the first draft of that because uh, it was highly controversial and it had a lot of things in Greenbelt. Um, the problem is that if you speak to council officials, it's still, you know, whatever way you cut it, it's still not going to be possible to meet the level of projected housing need on the government's own formula without building on Greenbelt. So that is going to come back in the summer and potentially set off another firestorm of rows about the fact that actually probably some of these Greenbelt proposals haven't really gone anywhere at all. So that's going to be a looming very thorny issue, which effectively just got kicked down the road for 18 months, but it is going to come back. I mean, he, he, his election was very convincing. Like, he, mm. he, he was, he really outperformed where you kind of expected a generic Labour candidate to be in that election. Is he, is he popular now? Is he still, like, what's his reputation like? Um, it's, it's kind of hard to say with the wider public. I think he is still fairly popular with the, with the wider public. I mean, you know, the second that he brings in, finds a new tax to bring in, I suspect that that may, may change. Although he did bring in, um, uh, a small mayoral precept in May, and that seemed to just kind of largely get accepted, really. But it wasn't, it wasn't a huge amount. Um, I think, Within, it's funny actually. The I don't know whether you follow Dan Hewitt on Twitter, but he he uh, covers politics up here for ITV, and he was saying that a Tory, I think he said a Tory minister or certainly a Tory MP had said to him the other day that from their perspective, Andy Burnham is now viewed as the leader of the opposition in the north because Jeremy Corbyn has actually been kind of relatively quiet about an awful lot of these things and just seems to be leaving Andy Burnham to get on with it. Among Labour people, it's kind of been accepted that. He is there now, uh, and I think initially there was sort of grumbling in some quarters about, you know, how dare he swan back in from Westminster and suddenly be all about devolution when a couple of years ago he was kicking off about the health devolution deal and saying that he wouldn't allow it if he became health secretary. So there was all that kind of grumbling among Labour people, which has kind of to some extent died down because they sort of seem to accept it. But I think they are they will be expecting to see some kind of delivery now on some of the stuff that was in his manifesto. Um, and the, really the next year or so, given that he's up again in 2020 and it's a short term, is going to be the kind of crunch point for starting to deliver some of that stuff, especially around bus franchising, because that's that's that actually is a, a mayoral power. And that is something that a lot of people are expecting to sort of get moving and, and make a difference sort of relatively quickly. Okay, well, I would be careful because there is a chance I would make you come back and talk about buses at some point. Oh, no. <laughs> it's okay. I can just say they've not done anything yet. Okay, cool. Well, that'll be a, that'll be a short episode. <laughs> Jen, thank you very much. No problem. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the new Statesman City site. 
It was presented and produced by me, John Elledge. If you enjoyed the episode, then please do consider leaving us an iTunes review. It really helps other people to discover the show. And, you know, the more people get listening to this show, the sooner I can achieve my real goal of world domination for the medium of trains. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.